long after our physical uh, uh, our physical abilities have faded and so on, our self-worth will still be our core foundation and our core need and our core drive. Uh, and so uh, and so as I'll talk about shortly, uh, it's this worth that starts taking a bit of a hammering after you retire. Because you've pinned so much of your worth to your capacity to achieve as an elite athlete, your worth is <clears throat> is um, almost 100% uh, invested in that. When all of that ends, where is your worth? Uh, and so it is not uncommon for athletes um, who have pinned their, uh, their self-worth to their capacity to achieve. When the achievements end, so does their self-worth. This is Andrew Martin, Professor of Educational Psychology at the University of New South Wales in Australia, and you are listening to uh, the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you Dr. Andrew Martin, uh, who is a Scientia professor and professor of educational psychology at the University of New South Wales, uh, specializing in motivation, engagement, achievement, and quantitative research methods. Uh, he is also honorary research fellow in the Department of Education at the University of Oxford, Honorary Professor in the Faculty in Education of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney, a Fellow of the American Psychological Association, Fellow of the American Educational Research Association, Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia, Fellow of the Australian College of Educational and Developmental Psychologists, and President of the International Association of Applied Psychologies Division 5 Educational and School Psychology. So we are obviously in the presence of a very credentialed um, individual and, and scholar, and I'm really excited to have um, Dr. Martin on the, the podcast here. I came across his work through an article published on The Conversation, uh, which is titled, Preparing Athletes for Transition to Life After Sport uh, Should Begin in Childhood. And that's something that really resonated with me. And some of the information that he provided in there was like so amazing that I just knew I had to uh, also share that with my, my listeners. So, uh, Dr. Martin, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Kevin. Yeah, so can you start off by kind of t taking us through what got you interested in studying motivation, engagement, and achievement? Yeah, I guess uh, probably started when I was uh, when I was a high school student, and uh, and just before I went to uh, on to senior high school uh, at uh, at parent teacher interview, uh, my uh, my year master was surprised that I wanted to go on to to senior high school, um, not because I lacked the ability, but uh, because I really uh, lacked the motivation. I wasn't doing any homework. I wasn't doing any assignments. My grades were 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 pretty uh, pretty rotten, and uh, and so um, I had a uh, and th and that surprised me. I guess as a as a as a young a young man, you don't often connect the consequences of what you're doing uh, with what you're doing. And so uh, when I saw where I guess my lack of motivation and disengagement was leading me, I was pretty shocked. Uh, so uh, so it was a bit of a long climb back to uh, back to engagement and motivation, but but I did it nonetheless. So I guess I I knew at a young age what it what it was like to to switch off. Uh, I knew at a young age what it was like to to fail and to do poorly, and I also uh, I had a good experience of, of of what that was leading to. So I think that uh, and so the other side of to that was what sorts of things can uh, can people do to uh, to get back on track from a motivation perspective, particularly when you've dug a bit of a deep hole for yourself. And so uh, so I think that um, that started, although I didn't realise it back then. Uh, but when I got to university and started studying there, and then went on to do a PhD, it was it was failure and fear of failure that my PhD was on. Uh, and so I think that interest started quite early. Okay. And do you think that that was kind of why you struggled, you know, early on in your education or for the lack of motivation? Was that a fear of failure? Like, you know, what can you pinpoint today that made you struggle? 
Yeah, look, I think uh, I think that was certainly a part of it, and uh, and as as um, we'll probably go on to talk about, uh, I'll talk about uh, you know people's uh, sometimes fear of trying hard because of the implications it might have if you don't do well after trying hard. I think the uh, uh, the fact that I was uh, sort of uh, pinning my worth to the wrong things, and also around that time um, I was involved in I was involved in uh, in various sports and, and I was pretty good at sport uh, but um, in some way in, and also I think a lot of my worth was wrapped up in that and uh, and I recall there was one in one sport I was very good at um, and uh, and it, re- it required a, you know, the American audience might not be familiar with it, the sport of cricket, and uh, and it um, and I was an opening bowler for cricket all through my childhood, so I was I was I was pretty good, um, but I developed late, and so because uh, I was a fast bowler in, in childhood, but because I developed late, other boys that were developing early became faster bowlers than me, and uh, and so I was relegated to. Uh, you know, way down the way down the order, and um, and that really that really hit my self esteem and self worth pretty hard. And this is just local local level cricket, uh, and uh, and so I actually dropped quick cricket and moved into another sport where strength was where it was more coordination and agility rather than strength that was needed. So that was another little int- insight into <laughs> feeling feeling and experiencing failure feeling the shame and the lack of self-worth due to that uh, and uh, and then and then how I responded to that so I guess there's been very early experiences in my life um, all, all all revolving around failure and success that uh, defined a lot of my choices yeah so from what I hear it sounds like you had some some struggles in school and also some struggles in sport and it's something that really resonates with myself as well with kind of the loss of identity after I suffered a severe traumatic brain injury in a football game um, in terms of how it kind of I lost that identity as an athlete and it kind of spilled into my academics as well and I was struggling really bad you know in my first year in college. I'm sure a lot of other athletes can can relate to that as well. Um, just before we get dive into the, more of the uh, interview, um, can you just broadly kind of uh, tell us a little bit about some areas of research that relate to the topic that we're talking about today? Yeah, so so I'm I'm what they call a, a motivation researcher, and uh, and most of my research is in in school. Uh, and uh, but also but some of it is actually is in the area of sport as well, and what I'm particularly interested in is um, uh, particularly as relevant to what we're talking about today is how do how do uh, students or sports people respond to uh, respond to success and failure, uh, and also what strategies uh, do we use when we're faced with, for example, the threat of failure, uh, and what strategies do we use to to maintain success? And so, uh, so some of those strategies um, are very um, are very positive, and so uh, investing greater effort, um, working on one's attitude uh, in the face of failure or the threat of it. But some of the strategies can be quite um, counterproductive. Uh, so, for example, uh, if you're uh, faced with the threat of failure, uh, some people may engage in perfectionism, and so one one way to uh, avoid failure is to succeed. Uh, but underlying that is a is a is a problematic motivation that can arouse uh, anxiety. And if uh, if you don't succeed after a while, you can move into more counterproductive territory and start avoiding and reducing effort and so on. So my research looks at that um, amongst high ability students. Uh, it looks at these issues amongst struggling students. Um, but and but these are what we call uh, pan-human dynamics. So it and, and doesn't doesn't just apply to high ability people. Uh, wherever I guess my research comes down to the idea that wherever a human being is required to perform, wherever a human being is evaluated in some way, there are some uh, some motivational dynamics that we'll talk about shortly uh, that underpin that and that define how a person uh, maintains their success and also defines how a person responds to failure or the threat of failure. 
Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, th- this this topic is something that I'm like super interested and passionate about. And part of the reason why I started this podcast in the first place was to kind of like help athletes in particular, like, you know, through these, you know, times of failure, whether that be injury, illness, or any other kind of obstacle. So I'm really excited to dive in a little deeper. Um, I just have a couple of questions to kind of set the stage uh, for this topic. And the first one is kind of just like an overarching like how are I, our our identities formed like broadly yeah so identities formed uh through uh, usually early in life uh and uh through childhood and adolescence especially i guess my view is that you know by the time you've you sort of you've hit your mid 20s a lot of a lot of um uh sort of the neuropsychological processes of a completing um and also a lot of our socializing and emotional development is is starting to wrap up but between childhood and that there's a, there's a lot of unpacking that goes on in one's life and a, and a lot of um uh, identity development that can be developed uh, by how others respond to us and, uh, and so as we might talk about how how parents and coaches for example uh, um, behave towards us the attitudes they shape in us uh, how they respond to us shapes what we think of ourselves but also um, we ourselves shape our identity so the sorts of things that we personally value uh, the importance we place on different parts of our life and uh, and how much we uh, we align our worth to those those uh, those parts of our life and so identity and then identity will be shaped not only by others not only by ourselves but also by our experiences and so as we move through childhood, we learn what we're good at, we learn what we're not good at, and gradually, in one way or another, uh, that will be uh, that will be shaped. I guess I should also say that I, you know a certain level of identity is also genetic, and so we will inherit uh, from our parents uh, a certain temperament, and that temperament, uh, some you know, can be uh, sort of an easygoing, agreeable, open to- sort of temperament, or that temperament might be more of an anxious, apprehensive temperament and so this also will play into um, our, our identity how we see ourselves uh, and uh, and also um, how uh, how much uh, how highly or, or, or poorly we regard ourselves that was great a great uh, definition of, of uh, how we form identities and I think that's good to have in mind as we go through this um, this conversation so my next question is what are some common symptoms that athletes tend to struggle with or that t- common symptoms of athletes struggling in their transition to life after sports and kind of find that new identity yeah so there's there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh channels on which transition takes place there i guess the first is logistic uh it's possible they'll 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 have less money uh if they haven't managed their money appropriately i hasten to add uh, and that's and that's quite common uh that it's not managed appropriately through their through their performing life um They'll, they may need to move cities. They may need to have a new, um, you know, residential setup. Uh, logistics. They may need to look for a, a, a job, start a new line of work, and so all of this is sort of uh, uh, logistical uh, transition. There'll also be a physical transition. We well know that athletes, um, uh, having been through fairly structured diets and uh, and uh, 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 training regimes are in a particular physical state during their performing life, uh, and it's not uncommon to uh, to to you know uh, let yourself go a little bit after after elite performance, and so physical transition there. There may be also injury that you'll now have to be starting to mop up, uh, and also there will be some mental and emotional adjustments, um, as we'll probably talk about. Uh, your identity um, is now uh, is now low, so no longer tethered to what you were doing before. Uh, uh, there's not the recognition given to you that uh, that uh, that you had before, and so um, and so there'll be some emotional and mental and identity adjustments that need to take place. Some for some people, these are all quite low level. Uh, for one reason or another, there's been good uh, uh, transition planning coming up. Uh, there's been 
the early seeds of a, of a sort of a functional human being were laid down in childhood and adolescence. I'll talk about that soon. And so we have a reasonably functional person who will still need to make a transition, but the challenges are, are what we call low level, all the way through to quite extreme challenges. And so um, through, you know, mental and emotional uh, um, uh, breakdown, uh, logistics that, um, that are insurmountable, so failure to get a job, struggling to, uh, to, to, you know, manage one's daily life. And so, uh, and so athletes will be on that, on, the, on that continuum on each of those, uh, on each of those channels. So throughout your career, you know, how, like, when have, when were people starting to talk about this athlete transition? Cause I feel like it's almost become like a buzzword or a buzz phrase these last few years. Like, what do you think has led to that? Or maybe I'm wrong. No, look, I we I think we're 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 hearing more about that. I think for a few reasons, uh, uh, you know, social media allows. So so I guess winding back a bit, um, there, some athletes um, make a very successful uh, transition, and they harness a lot of the lessons they learnt through uh, through their sporting life into other walks of life, and so um, and so often they're uh, they're quite high, pro- high profile successes, and and so the transition uh, the transition is is looked at um, as one of the the factors in that, but un- most unfortunately there are also some um, very high profile tragedies, uh, and so uh, and so. Uh, and, and they're not uncommon. And I think um, now uh, in the age of, of social media, uh, I think uh, I think we get to hear about those more. And again, with the as with the successes, the tragedies, um, we look to things like the transition uh, to uh, to help explain that. So I think there's a few reasons um, it's uh, it's becoming more salient now. This this issue of athlete transition. Okay. And just to kind of immerse ourselves into the, the awesome article that you uh, you wrote, um, there were two athletes that you mentioned, uh, Grant Hackett and Dan Vickerman. Um, and I was wondering if you could just kind of describe some of those stories for our listeners in the U.S. because those are two names that they might not be uh, familiar with, and just kind of like why you chose those examples. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess I I, I didn't uh, I, I chose those examples. They they were more. I'd been watching um, I've been watching a number of athletes uh, from afar. I don't know these people personally. Uh, really struggle with the transition. They do tend to, uh, you know, it, it does. Does tend to make the news when when a when a when a famous athlete you know comes unstuck, and so and this had been happening for a number of years, and uh, and it was just these two athletes that seemed to be seemed to in this in the one month these athletes um, uh, made made the headlines in the most unfortunate of ways, and so it was at that point that I I sort of hit a point where I thought I'd write an article about this, and so those two was were the most recent that prompted me to write them. They're not anything um they, they weren't chosen at first any other reason however so grant grant hackett um is a um is a uh, a very was a highly regarded uh, australian swimmer uh he um he held the australian record and, and ha- i think held the world record for the 1500 meter uh distance in freestyle and uh and so uh again australia loves its swimmers and the 1500 meter event has has often been seen as a an australian signature event and so whoever holds that title is a very well known person in this country and so he has wrestled uh, since his transition through uh from elite athlete life he um he's uh, struggled quite publicly with mental health and so and also issues around uh, and and um uh, substance use and so on, and so uh, and so that uh, that's why I selected him for that. Dan Vickerman was an international rugby union player uh, for, uh, uh, for playing for Australia, and um, and he uh, sadly passed in that uh, p- passed away in that same month. Uh, and um, and without going into any details about that, I know uh, mental health was. Um, was connected to that um, 
uh, or at least it was reported that mental health was connected to his passing. He would have been in his early 30s. And so um, and so in the same month, these two, as just another example of, of, dif of, of, of difficult transitions from elite life to post-elite life, um, and that's what prompted me to, uh, to dig into this a little more deeply. All right. Thank, thanks for those explanations. And uh, I'll obviously have this art, your article and, you know, articles to these, uh, the stories of these athletes in the show notes. Um, but one of the, the first topics that you kind of cover uh, in your article is this concept of contingent self-worth. And I was hoping that you can explain that to, to us. Yeah. So contingent self-worth <clears throat> is where uh, is where we pin our worth or, or our self-worth to our uh, to our capacity to achieve. And so, so our worth is dependent or contingent on our capacity to achieve. And so when a, when a, a, a a person's worth is pinned to this. Uh, they they feel more worthwhile when they are achieving, and they feel less worthwhile when they do not achieve. Uh, and so they feel worthy when they achieve, and worthless, worthless when they when they fail. Uh, what this means is that uh, every test, every uh, every sporting event becomes not only a test of, for example, your physical uh, prowess or your agility or your coordination, your speed, your strength, but also a test of your worth. And so, uh, so what we find is this can significant escalate one's fear of uh, fear of failure because not only uh, is there a threat to your your physical prowess, for example, your coordinational speed? But it is in fact uh, a threat to your self worth. Uh, and um, we are deeply, deeply motivated to protect our self worth. And so, uh, so if there's a challenge to our worth, then that is highly threatening. So contingent self worth is where we pin our worth to our capacity to achieve, and this can start fueling or laying the seeds for a fear of failure. You said something interesting that uh, how we're deeply threatened by kind of our our self worth and trying to protect our self worth. So, what do you mean by that? Like, so uh, so a self worth uh, feeling worthy is a is is a core motivational drive or a core motivational need, and avoiding feelings of worthlessness uh, is also a core a core drive. And so when when our um, when we pin our worth to our successes and our achievements, this renders the achievement scenario or the competition quite threatening uh, to our self-worth. Uh, as I'll explain shortly, there are a number of ways we we respond to this this threat to our self worth, um, but I guess the the point being that um, long after our physical uh, uh, our physical abilities have faded and so on, our self worth will still be our core foundation and our core need and our core drive, uh, and so um, and so as I'll talk about shortly, uh, it's this worth that starts taking a bit of a hammering after you retire because you've pinned so much of your worth to your capacity to achieve as an elite athlete. Your worth is <clears throat> is um, almost 100% uh, invested in that. When all of that ends, where is your worth? Uh, and so it is not uncommon for athletes um, who have pinned their, uh, their self-worth to their capacity to achieve. When the achievements end, so does their self-worth. Okay. And in that article, and we kind of alluded to this before as well, um, with your own personal story is, you know, how is this contingent self-worth and fear of failure connected? Uh, so, <clears throat> so when your worth is tethered to the achievement scenario um, and when failure is uh, is essentially the thing that will uh, reduce your self-worth. So uh, when you succeed, you feel worthy. When you fail, you feel worthless. Um, then uh, uh, it's, uh, it's quite typical uh, for um, athletes, students, um, elite musicians, artistic performers. Uh, it's not uncommon for um, them to start fearing failure because failure is the very thing that starts um, threatening 
and robbing one of one's self-worth. And this is the risk when you pin your worth to your success and your failure. Uh, it's great while you're succeeding, you feel quite worthy, but failure um, threatens self, your self-worth tremendously. And so uh, it's no surprise that after a while, particularly if um, if uh, if your performance is starting to uh, starting to flag, it's not uh, it's not uncommon for uh, fear of failure to set in. Okay, and what are some things that maybe you know in your article we were specifically talking about kind of starting this you know identity process or building identities outside of sport in childhood. So what can parents do in this regard to set their athletes up for a successful transition? Yeah, so getting back to an earlier question about identity, one part of identity is, is developed through yourself, but it's another part is also developed by how people respond to you. And so um, if uh, parents um, or significant others and coaches um, uh, uh, you know, make you feel more worthy a fundamentally better human being because you've succeeded, um, then uh, then the seeds are starting to be sown. Um, and so, if uh, if you're seen as if your approval and the love and the affirmation that you get from parents, coaches, and so on are because of your successes, then immediately your self worth is starting to become vulnerable because. Uh, the love and approval uh, is dependent on uh, your capacity to achieve. And so, uh, whereas parents and coaches um, who separate the worth of the child from their achievements, um, that uh, they don't sow the seeds for this fear of failure because the student, the child feels worthwhile whether they succeed or whether they fail. Uh, and so, uh, however, in cases where parents um, uh, provide more love, more affirmation, more approval to a child because they've uh, performed better, they've achieved more highly, uh, then uh, this starts creating what we call a contingent self-worth. So the child's worth uh, and approval from parents is contingent on their achievements. And, uh, and this makes every achievement scenario quite threatening because it's now not only a test of his or her physical prowess and speed and so on, it's not only a test of the child's self-worth, but also it's now become a test of the approval and affirmation they'll receive from their parents. Is it any wonder a child or a sports person is fearful of failure when now so much is riding on that success? Yeah, that's a that's a lot on, on the shoulders of that athlete or artist or musician or student uh, with all that kind of weighing on their performance. So have you studied, you know, the effect that fear of failure has on uh an elite athlete's performance? We've done quite a lot of research into fear of failure, uh, not so much amongst elite athletes, but certainly amongst students and high ability and high performing students. Uh, and, and the dynamics are the same. As I said earlier, these are what we call pan-human dynamics. Wherever a human being is required to perform or evaluated, uh, these, um, these dynamics come into play. Uh, and so uh, one part of our research looks at what are the strategies that people will use to um, what are the strategies that people will use to uh, to respond to their fear of failure and uh, and so I mentioned one strategy earlier and that was uh, and that was um, uh, uh, perfectionism and so perfectionism one way to avoid failure is to succeed uh, and when we look at perfectionism there is fear of failure that underlies that and it drives their um, it drives their obsession uh, to succeed, but not so much this, their obsession to succeed, their obsession to avoid failure. But if failure, uh, if after that, uh, your drive for perfectionism, um, if it, uh, even in the face of, of your, um, uh, your investment of incredible effort uh, and resources, there's still the threat of poor performance. Um, What's another option? Another option is what we call self-sabotage or self-handicapping. And this is where um, students or athletes will put obstacles in their path to success. Uh, usually when there's a competition, uh, an event, a performance, a test, uh, 
uh, around the corner. So for example, obstacles include uh, doing little or no training, leaving things to the last minute or procrastination, um, uh, reducing effort, um, being consistently late, uh, doing things, um, you know, other things that aren't quite as, uh, that, that aren't a priority, but, uh, but um, are a bit of a time waster, clowning around in class or in training. Uh, in more extreme examples, uh, sometimes um, um, alcohol and other drugs can be a, an obstacle of choice. What's going on here? Even though the athlete might increase the chances of performing poorly, what they manage to do is to alter the meaning of that poor performance. They've essentially established an alibi or an excuse and they can deflect the cause of poor performance away from a lack of ability that I've explained is earlier uh, uh, has implications for your self-worth and onto a lack of effort. No one can conclude you lack ability if you haven't tried hard enough. And so the athlete protects their self-worth by deflecting a cause of a poor performance away from a lack of ability and onto a lack of effort. And so even though they might not avoid poor performance, they avoid the self-worth implications of poor performance. Self-worth is very much wrapped up in your ability to achieve. No one likes looking incompetent uh, and so deflecting the cause of poor performance away from incompetence and onto a lack of effort uh, is uh, protects their self-worth for a time, because after a while, if you keep putting obstacles in your path to success, um, uh, your performance will probably um, get worse. And uh, and then the excuses start, don't no longer work, the alibis no longer work, uh, and, uh, and we find um, uh, people move into a more uh, extreme form of failure avoidance, and that's in fact disengagement. And so it's not uncommon for students, athletes and so on to give up altogether at that point. And so we have a range, on a, again on a continuum from perfectionism all the way through to disengagement, a range of responses to how people deal with their fear of failure uh, and, uh, and their contingent self-worth. Have you found like what pushes um, people one way or the other, like perfectionism or disengagement? Like, Yeah, so... Um, There'll be a few factors that play into that. Um, one is, is I guess, how uh, how successful you are at succeeding. So, some people will stay perfectionistic, um, obsessive effort, very little balance in life, sacrificing almost everything uh, to succeed, and. And some people will be able to maintain that through their entire performing life. And so they don't need to reach for the, the alibi in self-handicapping, uh, self or they don't need to go even further and give up altogether. Their perfectionism is working, sort of. Uh, um, perfectionists don't enjoy what they do as much as they should. Perfectionists, it's the sort of, of Damocles uh, hovering over their head, uh, always worried that maybe it'll be the next performance where they fail. Uh, and so um, they're never quite comfortable in their own skins. Uh, and so um, so how, how they, how, if they keep succeeding, then maybe they won't trip into self-handicapping and disengagement. I should also say again, environment will be, will be a factor. And so, for example, um, I think where the pressure is very intense, uh, sometimes the only way to self-protect and survive is to is to give up or self-handicap. What's interesting is um, anxiety and self-handicapping are quite quite closely linked. What the research shows is that once a person has their alibi, their anxiety uh, uh, reduces uh, because uh, because now that you've got your you get out of jail card for your self worth um, you're not so anxious about the upcoming performance and so it's interesting um, so it's possible that people who are a little more um, anxious and apprehensive may be inclined towards uh, towards self handicapping as well. That's yeah, those are interesting points. Um, speaking of kind of like the perfectionism route and how people can kind of do that throughout their whole performing careers, you know, why do these elite performers tend to define themselves so narrowly? Yeah. Especially. I think um, 
and again, this happens in childhood and adolescence. And I've seen, I've seen it, um, you know, uh, at the sub-elite level, at the school level. Um, I'll see that, uh, you know, uh, children and adolescents, uh, they're celebrated for um, what is usually a very narrow, uh, a narrow talent. Uh, so, uh, so they're celebrated by others. And because we're so influenced by others at that at that age uh, we start defining ourselves in the in the narrow ways that we're celebrated for I think also it is the case uh, and this is I guess a reality that to be an elite performer you do have to invest a tremendous amount of time and resources into a fairly narrow channel to uh, to succeed and to stay successful and so that is a zero-sum game. Uh, uh, that is uh, to spend. If you spend all your time doing that, there is no time um, available to do something else and and be and develop a little more of a balanced and rounded um, uh, existence. Um, and I also think that uh, getting back to the worth that's uh, that's afforded to children and adolescents at a young age, they learn pretty quickly that when they're standing on the on the on the days as number one, they get a gold medal around their neck. They've beaten a a, a, a record for you know a national age based record. Uh, these early impressionable years, they learn that they're approved of uh, more. They're afforded more celebration and adulation, uh, and uh, and so their their worth uh, uh, rides on that. And so it um, that channel becomes privileged. Uh, over other aspects of, of their lives. I should also say that, um, uh, again, in childhood and adolescence, and I'm talking to childhood and adolescence a lot because I actually believe as much as uh, retirement transition planning is really important, a lot of the struggles that happen post-retirement are laid down in childhood and adolescence around worth and, and so on. Uh, but another thing is that when they're young uh, in childhood and adolescence, certain privileges are also afforded to them. And so um, consequences for actions that other students or children or young people might experience, um, those might not be, uh, those consequences might not be rolled out with these elite performers because there's an important sporting meet coming up or the school's worth or the school's uh, notoriety is, uh, is pinned on this elite athlete and so they're careful with the consequences. Uh, if that athlete has done the wrong thing, um, they might not get the same uh, treatment as, as other students. And so what happens is the boundary conditions of the real world are not, um, are not communicated, are instilled in these people at a young age. And so, again, it's not surprising that post-retirement, when they make mistakes that the rest of us make and have had harsh consequences, um, because those consequences have not been rolled out early, um, they're surprised that... Um, um, that, uh, that those consequences now apply to them. And so it's not uncommon for uh, transgressions to be made and, and laws to be broken post-retirement that may well not have been broken uh, if in the early stages of childhood consequences and rules and boundary conditions have been applied to them. And so all of this, getting back to the question, all of this um, creates a, a fairly narrow microcosm or bubble in which a child and young person unpacks him or herself to develop his or her identity. Yeah, I think there's countless examples uh, of, you know, people or athletes in particular, you know, kind of living a life of ex being exempt from consequences until they have to pay a consequence and then it, then, then it becomes an issue and it's national news. Do you think that you can be an elite level performer and not be narrowly focused? Because it seems to me that like a lot of elite athletes, there are they are very narrowly focused and they make a lot of sacrifices to put the time in almost that perfectionist type mentality. Um, so do you think that that's like a requirement? or a prerequisite to becoming an elite performer? Um, and if so, do you have, well, do you have examples of other examples that they are more well-rounded? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of examples where they are well, uh, well-rounded. Um, as I, uh, 
uh, mentioned earlier, there are some high-profile successful transitions, and these are reasonably, uh, you know, functional human beings to the extent that we're all functional or not. Uh, and uh, and so there's, a, I think there's a few things that play into that. I think first of all, um, you know, to be balanced, you don't need to be throwing truckloads of hours at something else. For example, I think you can be balanced. Um, by you know being a good brother, uh, being a being a a, a good uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, um, being honest, um, uh, being uh, respectful, uh, and so um, what I'm I guess what I'm saying here is um, even though you will pour tremendous hours into uh, into your narrow sporting channel, for example, um, there are many other channels in the everyday course of life that you can uh, c that you can make a priority without detracting from the hours you spend in uh, in your training and performance. Uh, and so, uh, so these uh, these uh, social emotional attributes, if the athlete and others around him or her uh, can privilege these attributes alongside or even above the physical prowess, I think that lays a foundation for balance. I think also uh, during childhood and adolescence especially, um, where parents, coaches and so on, uh, uh, it is okay to celebrate an athlete, uh, but the point I make again and again is to celebrate the attitude and effort that got them there rather than ability. Uh, we find that a when, when ability is celebrated, that's where self-worth uh, becomes more vulnerable. Whereas when we celebrate effort uh, and when we celebrate attitude, uh, those uh, we find they tend not to be so wrapped up in self-worth, and so they're more of a uh, more of a standalone um, uh, attributes that uh, where that don't tend to evoke uh, contingent self-worth and tend not to evoke fear of set the seeds for fear of failure, but they're also the very attributes that will be required uh, for post uh, post sporting life transition. So if but if others around them keep celebrating the ability, that is something that you can't take into post retirement uh, because you often can't apply your you know your physical prowess, your speed or the strength to lock, lock lots of post retirement life uh, pathways. But you can take effort and attitude into those posts. So I think also a more uh, it is possible to even though you have to narrowly focus your training and resources. Um, with, if yourself and others can direct attention to the, the attributes that need to be sustained post-sporting life, such as effort and attitude, uh, those, that also will lay the seeds uh, for, a, uh, for a balanced life. And then finally, I think a third thing is um, the meaning, the meaning we attach to success and failure uh, also will uh, uh, lay the seeds for a balanced or narrow life, and so, for example, if we, uh, if at a young a young age, mistakes are seen as growth opportunities and not as something uh, 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 implicated in your worth, I think that also lays a foundation for a balanced life because you will make mistakes pretty quickly uh, 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 in post sporting life, and so if you have an attitude towards mistakes that is, mistakes are diagnostic uh, information for improvement, mistakes are growth opportunities then I think uh, that lays also a, a balanced mental disposition that, um, lay, that, that um, will allow for a, quite a, 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 a functional post-sporting life transition. Yeah, those are all awesome points. And uh, one that stuck out in particular to me is that when you're looking for, I guess, the four, like we're talking about the perfectionist performer and how they pour so many hours into that one thing. I like how you said like the other things that you do outside of that doesn't have to be like super time consuming things. Like you don't need to like learn how to play the guitar or like, you know, do something that's uh, another thing is like very time consuming. It could be as simple as, you know, being a good brother, being a good boyfriend or girlfriend. Like it doesn't have to be that, that complicated. Um, so I thought that was a, a good point to reinforce. Um, another part of your article that I thought was really cool was this concept of the one third rule. And that's the, it's the first time I ever heard of it. So I was kind of curious, like um, where that comes from in, in terms of self-identity. Yeah, And I, I was I'm trying to scratch around to see where, 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 where I picked it up from. And uh, so I, I 
can't shed any specific life, but uh, light on that, um, a listener probably will. Um, but um, so it was, it was a counselling advice that said, um, no one part of our life should contribute more than one third to our self worth and self esteem. Uh, and so, uh, just this idea that um, uh, you know, uh, get our self worth from uh, you know at least three parts of life. And so, uh, and so for you know students who are elite athletes, I will say you know get some of it in your social life. Get your worth, some of your worth from your social life. Get some from family life. Uh, get some from I don't know. You might be you know you know your 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 video gaming or or your school or your academic life. Um, and so even though your athletic life may may consume more than one third of your waking hours, I get that. That's the reality of of elite performance but don't let it contribute more than a third to your self-esteem so um, don't put all your self-worth eggs in one basket getting back to this post um, elite life uh, transition if you put all your self-worth uh, eggs in one basket when that basket empties as it does uh, on uh, on retirement, there is nothing left as the basis for your self-worth, and so you know you you don't know who you are, uh, and uh, and you uh, don't have any self-regard because what you know the basis of that regard is now gone. So again, early in life, um, what other parts in life can we get a sense of worth, a sense of identity on? Uh, and so that was the that was the one third rule. Okay, yeah, that's a really cool. It's like another like easy thing to kind of think about and kind of wrap your mind around the whole identity piece. Um, because I, I even just doing this podcast, um, I kind of did it as a way almost to like kind of form a new identity when I was in search of trying to find something after uh, sports. And then even recently, I was like, I think I have a little too much of my identity wrapped up in the podcast itself. Like <laughs> I had more than a third. I'm like, I need to start doing other stuff that um, kind of spreads it out. I'm like, I'm just furthering the issue that I've always had. Um, so I thought that was a, a great point. And when I read that, I was like, oh, like that's a perfect example of at least point out to myself that I was not living up to that one third rule. Yeah. Do you happen to notice a difference between males and females in their transitions to life uh, after sports? Because, I mean, you don't really ever hear about, I mean, sometimes on occasion, but I feel like the vast majority of the stories or the tragic stories that you hear are, are mostly male. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I don't I don't have any facts or figures on that. But yeah, I, I speculate that, that you're right. Um, and I don't, it might be cultural, but certainly in Australia, um, men attribute a lot of their worth to their capacity to achieve uh, and they say so their self-esteem and self-worth is very much defined on their achievements whether that be um, how senior they are in the workplace how much money they're earning how new their car is um, uh, males are more inclined than females to to uh, get the sense of worth in that and to want to achieve and achieve competitively um, also, and so to the extent that that's the case, the fear of failure and the and the problematic responses to it, we find it is true. We find more males are inclined to engage in self handicapping, more males are inclined to disengage, um, and uh, and so uh, so it looks like there's a gender difference there. I should also say, in terms of the um, in terms of the uh, uh, the the factors that can help one deal with uh, retirement, particularly moving into a new, very different part of your life and particularly when you have to give up something so critical to who you've been, um, uh, without question social support will be needed there. Uh, a willingness and a capacity to uh, recognize and reflect on your emotions, a willingness and a capacity to articulate those emotions and talk through how you're feeling and give and give positive expression to your emotions, that will all be very key. And it is the case that females are better at those things than males. Females do develop uh, more uh, and and uh, and deeper social connections with others. They tend to have more social support. Females are, are, are better at, at recognizing how they're feeling, uh, a little more in touch, 
uh, and females are a little better at articulating those and working through those uh, uh, to give uh, positive and functional expression to those emotions. Males are a little more less inclined to have those deep social networks. Males are um, have learnt to often articulate emotion through their physical activities such as sport and all that, not through talking and articulating these things. And certainly in Australia, males are not encouraged to reflect on their emotions and how they're feeling. That's not seen as masculine. And so for these reasons, I do suspect there is a gender divide when it comes to how you move through your elite life, but more importantly, how you transition from that elite life uh, of performance to, uh, to your new life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's just like you were explaining how, how kind of the, the dynamics are in Australia. It's really the same in, in the US as well. So um, I just just curious about those, those differences. And do you notice a difference between sports as well? Like, is there, you know, like a, for American football or rugby compared to cricket? Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and uh, and so um, certainly, uh, certainly, the two examples that were in the article that I wrote, uh, one's sport and one's one's football uh, or rugby union. Um, I think I did, uh, for my first answer is I don't know exactly, but I'd be interested to know differences between individual sports, individual sporting pursuits versus team pursuits. Um, I'd also be interested to know. Obviously, there are some sports that are very high profile, and so they may. Uh, athletes in these high-profile sports who will receive more public adulation. If worth has been, has if one's worth is heavily wrapped up in that public adulation, then those those high-profile sports may be uh, predispose some people to more uh, uh, challenging transition. Uh, and so, um, and so, I think those sorts of uh, those would be really interesting um, areas to to look into more closely. Yeah, I think it's interesting from what you said before as well, how like, you know, this performance anxiety and fear of failure and um, this kind of identity crisis isn't just affecting elite athletes and elite performers. It it happens to, you know, non-elite performers as well. So to me, like, even if the sport was not as high profile, you know, it it could have the same effects. We just maybe not don't hear about it as much. So just as we kind of wrap up our conversation here, I was kind of hoping to get some tips for people who might have um, been a little too late to, to this conversation and are currently struggling in their uh, transition to life after sports like uh, myself. Um, and just kind of what, like, what is your advice for these athletes in kind of uh, establishing a, a new identity? Yeah, I guess um, some of our research – so so – I guess having researched success and failure now for over a couple of decades, one thing, uh, three three good things come from success. Um, there may be more. These are the three main ones. First of all, it can be a confidence booster, uh, and that's that's great. Secondly, success affirms that you're on the right track, you're doing the right stuff, and so on. And thirdly, you you might get something good from your success. You might get a, a pay rise. You might win a medal. Uh, you might move to the to the A team, um, but after that, you've sort of maxed out from success. The question, the the real question is, where are the growth opportunities? And the growth opportunities are where there's a gap between where you are now and where you can be. And so, by definition, um, mistakes, uh, failure. Uh, challenging transitions. On the one hand, we can we can see that as as a bad thing. Um, on the other hand, however, we can see that actually this could be your biggest growth opportunity that you've had for a long, long time. And so, first of all, I guess the bottom line is to develop an underlying schema, an underlying orientation to what this transition is, and that is. Because because it it may you may be making mistakes you may not be succeeding in this transition you, um, it could be the biggest growth opportunity you've had for a long time 
uh, because up till now you may well have succeeded and succeeded and succeeded, which is great for a few reasons, but but there's but uh, you max out. Uh, at that point. And so that's that. I think the other is um, to uh, that one third rule is really helpful. And so look to different parts of your life where you can start, um, start uh, getting to know yourself and dare I say, rebuilding yourself uh, into those. And they don't have to be massive areas. Again, it could just be, you know, I'm going to I'm going to spend some more time with my friends and 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 give a little more to them. You know, I've you know, I haven't seen much of them over the last few years and so on, or a little more to my family. Um, and uh, and so they can be in everyday ways that you can you can um, get draw on as sources of your self worth. I think the other thing, obviously, is to is to, is to talk and to seek help. Uh, there are uh, you know psychologists, psychiatrists, and so on, counsellors um, uh, are well equipped with people who make are, are struggling with transitions, and so uh, it's really important to draw on help. It's not an admission of weakness. Uh, again, seeking help is another major opportunity. Uh, and so, whereas in some ways you've, through the years of success, you feel um, your strategy has worked for you, um, and it may have as an athlete, psychologists and so on are great at helping you develop uh, develop new strategies as well. Um, and I think also uh, focusing more on effort and attitude than on your ability. And so uh, as you make the post uh, post retirement transition. And so uh, the nice things about effort and attitude is that they can be improved all the time uh, and uh, and you can rescue them quickly. So if you didn't try very hard yesterday, you can try a little harder today. And so uh, and so those we find people that see success in terms of effort, uh, for example, more than ability. Uh, people who define success in effort tend to feel successful and efficacious uh, more frequently, more often. Why? Because effort is very controllable. So I think these sorts of uh, these sorts of things can be really helpful, uh, and uh, and obviously not only talking to psychologists, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people that can help with logistics as far as um, post uh, sporting life uh, retirement as well. Okay, and early on in that in your answer uh, to that question, you mentioned something about kind of maxing out your successes. And it kind of made me at least think about like your. I mean, I still find myself doing this, and maybe it's not a bad thing, but like you're almost kind of like always chasing the next thing. It's like you you get the job promotion, you get you know the car or whatever, and you know now it's like, well, well, what's next? You know, like is that helpful in the in the athlete transition because uh, it kind of gives you something to shoot for or it, could that work against Look, I think it's it's a really good thing to be aspirational um, I think it's a really good thing to um, look for uh, ongoing self-improvement uh, and so so you know striving to do well in something is a good thing from the motivation perspective however when you pin your self-worth to the pay packet that's or that you you pin your worth to your capacity to achieve and succeed. That's when you become vulnerable. Um, it doesn't make you you are not a better person because you've you've won a medal. You are no more. You are not a fundamentally better person for that. By the same token, you are not a fundamentally worse person because you didn't win the medal or you didn't come first or you missed out on your pay rise or your promotion application or the honours class at school. And so what we're trying to do is decouple your worth from your achievements. Uh, and so certainly strive and aim, uh, aspire and aim high, but don't tangle your worth up with that. Don't do it to keep filling, trying to fill an empty urn. Uh, uh, do it because you want to learn something new. You want to master. You want to enjoy, um, enjoy the experience of effortful success. Uh, and so we talk about the reasons you have for doing what you do. Uh, you can do the same thing but have different reasons for doing it. And the reasons we've talked about that can set you up for a fall is, is to, to, to prop up your worth or fill, fill an empty urn. I should also say that 
um, we've done a lot of work um, in we've we've pinched the idea of personal bests uh, in sport. We do a lot of personal best research and personal best goal setting in school, uh, and we find that uh, certainly students who um, who uh, are focused on PBs, that is trying to do a little better than they did before. We find they enjoy what they do more, they, are, they have more positive aspirations, they participate more, they achieve more highly in fact. Uh, and, so, um, and so one uh, thing that athletes are, are pretty good at is, um, particularly the very functional ones, are the ones that have a personal best regime. So even though they don't, uh, they might not you know, get the world record or whatever or, or, or come first in that event, a personal best will be very intrinsically satisfying. And I think that's another good little mantra to take through into um, post-retirement life. This idea of personal best uh, also we think can be a, uh, a, a great lesson that you may well have learned in your sporting life. That's not a bad one to take into post-sporting life. Yeah, I love that. It's something to, to constantly strive for and it's like in your control and your attitude and your effort can, you know, kind of push that that bar uh, higher. Um, so, Dr. Martin, thank you so much for your time and educating us on um, this idea of identity and rebuilding identity and kind of helping, you know, parents and coaches today kind of help these athletes that they might be interacting with on a daily basis to set them up for a successful life after sports, um, which is something that I definitely struggle with. And it obviously seems like other athletes are struggling with today. Um, so where can people uh, listening connect with you online and follow your yeah, work? So, uh, so I have uh, a ResearchGate account. And so if, if people uh, put in uh, Andrew J. Martin and UNSW, so that stands for University of New South Wales, and ResearchGate, so Andrew J. Martin, UNSW ResearchGate, uh, I put pretty much all of my research uh, up on ResearchGate. So anything anyone wants to read about the sort of stuff we're doing, which is very much along the lines of, um, of what we've been talking about, they'll be able to download those papers and, uh, and read to their heart's content. All right, and I'll link those up in the show notes. And yeah, thank, thanks again for, I feel like I got, uh, I was sitting in a, a college class right now that was uh, jam-packed with like awesome information that I'm going to take with me, um, you know, into the, into the real world too, not just the podcast world. <laughs> thanks very much, Kevin. <laughs>